Ladies and gentlemen, this is Book Music. This is Tosh. And I'm Kim Lee. And every episode, we discuss a book about music or a memoir by a musician or a biography, anything dealing with the music world. And today, Kim Lee, is a very special day. Indeed. Because we have the author of the book, It Came from Memphis, the updated and revised uh, version published by Third Man Books. We want to welcome Robert Gordon. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. People are applauding. You don't hear it, but <laughs> I feel it. Man. I feel the love. Right. You feel the virtual People, love. Sit down. Sit down. We have to start this. <laughs> Robert, thank you so much for being on our show first, during the yeah. show. And, you know, um, personally speaking, I love cities. I'm, I have such a romance about cities, not really countries as much as, you know, like metropolitans of all sorts or, or urban areas. You know, my favorite cities are, are Tokyo, um, Paris, and Los Angeles. And then there's places I never visit that I sort of fantasize about and that I, have, I really look up to. And Memphis is, is, is that city for me. Memphis is such a mythological land it's almost like a wizard of oz to me for some reason maybe <laughs> because, um, the music I, I mean i'm such a music i love music so I'm, I'm presuming it has to be the music culture um but anyway it's it doesn't seem real i never visited memphis and i want to one day um but i haven't done so but i but i have visions of memphis in my head and reading your book this feeds my my love for that for your city Good. I hope I've added a lot of uh, of new dimension to your fantasies of what the city might be, because I definitely tried to stay away from what people probably know and go deep into. I tried to shine a light into the shadows of of the city. And you do, <laughs> you do that. <laughs> you do a great skill. Um, because there's certain people like when I think of Memphis, I usually think of Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. Like right away, Elvis Presley. I'm okay with that. And then I think of the blues. I'm okay with that. And then Alex Shelton. Cool. And then William Eagleston, because I'm a huge fan of his, of his, of, of his work. And, well, man, uh, this book was for you then, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> it made for me. both oh, of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody else. No, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, There's but, going to be a lot of copies on your doorstep then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, what drew you writing about Memphis in the first place, you know, the city and the culture? And are you, are you from Memphis? I'm born and raised here. Um, and really, it was when I left town for, co- well, when I left town for college, I realized that not everyone had old blues men in their city, nor did they regularly swing by with a pint to knock it back with 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 the old <laughs> bluesmen they didn't have. So, um, yeah, getting out of town really helped shape my perspective on what I was raised with. Um, and and I got my, my uh, rabbit hole opened up at a Rolling Stones concert, 1975, when um, all day outdoor concert, uh, the Stones scheduled it to go on, you know, with like four opening bands and the Stones were supposed to go on around, I don't know, six or seven in the evening, but mm-hmm. 4th of July, it's not going to get dark till 830. And the Stones thought it was going to cool off after dark. 
you know, little did they know. <laughs> and, and, um, and so while they were waiting, they, while they kept this crowd of 55,000 hot rednecks and, you know, waiting, um, they sent across town and brought Furry Lewis over in a uh, limousine. And I remember being in the crowd with my back to the stage, looking for my friend who'd gone off to get us a couple coats about three hours earlier. And, and I heard this sound from the stage and it was like, you know, people talk about having lightning moments and I turned mm. I just, I heard, I heard this sound and I said, what is that? You know, and I can remember it plain as day. I was 14 or maybe 15. And, um, you know, it was Furry Lewis on stage in, with an acoustic guitar and he had played medicine shows to smaller crowds, you know, but he mm -hmm. knew how to manage a crowd. And in, in moments I was, you know, in his hands. And so uh, then F Furry showed up at my high school one afternoon when I was 15 before I could drive. And mm -hmm. I was like, how did this happen? And I got his phone number and I called him and he said, come on over, bring a pint of 10 high, which is cheap bourbon. <laughs> and it was and you're 15 little, at the time. I'm 15 and a little bit about <laughs> Memphis at the time, it was harder for me to get a ride to Furry's neighborhood than it was for me to walk in a liquor store and buy a bottle of booze. Oh, that's funny. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and then I was gone. No going back. <laughs> right, right. Uh, that's such an amazing story that, I mean, at such a young age, you had already made a connection with these kinds of people that... Uh, essentially became your life's work and it's, um yeah i'm wondering like you have such an affinity for you know and i say this in the most loving way the freaks weirdos and underdogs <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean for us those are the best people those are yes. the most interesting yeah. people so what draws you to their stories what do you think is so compelling about that um you know it's not so much that they're freaks weirdos and underdogs as much as it is their stories. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, all the people in this book, Furry Lewis, Jim Dickinson, Alex Chilton, William Eggleston, uh, Sputnik Monroe, Dewey Phillips. I mean, it's a big list of characters. Oh, all yeah. of them have, all, all of them kind of went against the grain. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, and I think that it is that difference, being different, that, helps us see the beauty right in the yeah. in the way that um the flaw in the wood grain shows off the wood these these people men and women help me see the beauty of my city and so mm -hmm. i became you know i wasn't quite your chamber of commerce fan of the city but but i was quite the booster of my underground scene and, and then the book just kind of developed from my slacker attitude of like maybe I don't have to get a job if I can get another assignment, you know, <laughs> writing for someone. And, uh, and, and that material just built up and built up and built up until, um, I pitched a book and got this deal, you know, came out in 1995, had no expectations really. I mean, I, well, right. the one expectation I've had, which I'm still waiting for, is where's the Cohen brothers, man? <laughs> oh, no oh, kidding. That would be, be perfect. <laughs> perfect for them. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> now, this was your first book, correct? Were you yes. writing before then? Were you writing for magazines and, and uh, yes. that kind of thing? Yes. I, I, had, I left college with visions of being a writer, and I took a job in a bakery to get out of the bars. Um, so I would work, you know, where I'd been hitting the, 
the the scene every night. Now, when the first band was taking the stage, I was pulling my first uh, batch of breads out of the oven, you know, so uh -huh. I worked all uh -huh. night. It got me out of sync with everybody I knew, and that way I could uh -huh. wake up and write. So I started writing for magazines, and I also wrote a couple long-form novels, which uh, I've never tried to do anything with because they're not very good. But I learned a lot about long form. So when I came to this book, you know, I had a I wasn't daunted by the by the task. I was writing for Spin magazine. You know, I found that there's lots of people like y'all who have this fascination with Memphis. And if I could find that editor, you know, I never wanted the cover story. You know, I had no interest in Madonna, Michael Jackson, right. Prince. Didn't listen to any of that stuff. I just wanted to be the thing in the the, the article in the back with the uh, sea monkeys and the X-ray specs. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm really fascinated by the photo on the cover. Um, yeah, you would think that you would maybe try to put somebody who's a little more famous on the cover, you know, Alex Chilton or whatever. But I had no idea who these people were. But I was immediately intrigued. I was like, who are these people? So what was the decision making process by putting this? And just because it was such a fantastic photo, I mean, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, it's like an it's like an alternative American Gothic. Mm. And, yeah. And the uh, Chet Wiesa, the editor at uh, Third Man, it was his suggestion. I've had a lot of luck with book covers, I feel like. And, mm -hmm. um, and this one, he, you know, I sent him some photos to choose from. And he said, what about this? And I run every important decision by my wife. And she said, now, if that were on a book cover, it wouldn't tell me, you know, I don't, I, it, would, it, it would make me want to read the book. I was like, hey, yeah. that's a good thing, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. So, it's like you don't know what it's about, but you're, like, intrigued immediately. Like, who are these people? They look interesting. <laughs> yes. And so the the yeah. woman is, and for those who haven't seen the book cover, it's like a late mid-late 70s shot of a white woman and, and a black man. Um, she's kind of casual but beautiful, and he's kind of dudded up in a... Uh, one of those seventies big, I don't even know what the name of those caps are, you know, um, yeah. but he's got a leather jacket on this cool cap, great handlebar mustache. They were just, she and her friend Gus Nelson, later known to the world as Tav Falco. They were just walking across this parking lot, saw the guy and Marcia said, Hey, you know, can we take a picture? And Tav snapped it. And like what, oh, 40 years cool. later, it ends up, it ends up on the, on the cover. Yeah, that's great. Now, she actually features prominently in the book. She's yes, she an does. interesting person herself. Yeah. Yes, she does. She's she's Eggleston's muse all through the 70s and into the 80s. And oh. um, she was like, you know, when oh. I was doing these interviews, yeah, you've seen her in Eggleston photos. Yeah, now, now it comes, you know, she looks, I mean, I'm looking at photographs and God, she's so beautiful. Yeah. And that's what I think about. Then all of a sudden you mentioned Eggleston and, ah, you know, now I see her. Uh, Connecting yeah. all the dots here. Yeah, she's the star of Stranded in Canton, which was a film I got wow. to make after this book came out. Yeah, I'm trying to find that. I don't see it streaming anywhere. Right I have now. it. Do? Yeah, I have the book that comes with it as well. So she's no, she's got a little story, you know, behind her, and and she was a great interview. As I um, as I was meeting these people, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of these people I'd seen from the audience all my life. I, you know, I just think of myself as the guy in the audience who's got a pen in his pocket. And, and, and so I'd always admired her. And when I called her up, you know, I said, and for the interview, and I went over there, I was intimidated a little bit because, you know, uh, here I am meeting uh -huh. 
star of the stage. And um, she was just so well spoken and had and so frank about everything. You know, it was like uh, she was one of those interviews where you go, yeah, yeah. you leave that and you go, yeah, yeah, I'm going to yeah. have a book. Here. This I is actually gonna be a book. Uh, pulled a quote that she she was talking about Campbell Kensinger, who I also thought was a really fascinating oh, yeah. person. And uh, she said uh, it was very mm -hmm. perceptive what she said. She said, I don't think he had any skills other than killing people. And anything <laughs> you get in the habit of doing is real hard to quit. That's seriously hard boiled. <laughs> <laughs> and so perceptive, you know. Oh, just, man, uh, I know. He's an interesting guy. I mean, you, and he was, he's kind of this like scary, you know, off the wall person. And then he's also friends with William Eggleston, who's sort of, from my understanding, he's sort of very refined and intelligent and cultivated. <laughs> so it's an mm -hmm. interesting dichotomy there. I remember Eggleston told me uh, one thing people don't know about Campbell is he had beautiful handwriting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just thought what a detail to to remark on. Campbell was a had gone to Vietnam uh, as a veteran, uh, you know, and got trained in. Um, oh basically in hand-to-hand -hand combat and taught it to others. Then he got kicked out uh, because he was uncontrollable and came <laughs> back and started a biker gang in Memphis. Uh, uh, yeah. It, it, he was, you know, in, 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 in assessing what level of heavy he was, when, they, when Nixon came here in the 70s and the route that Nixon was going to take was published, uh -huh. which was the, you know, the decoy route, Campbell knew the real route. They said, please don't bother him. You know, please leave Nixon alone. Wow, that's so amazing. <laughs> so he was a known quantity. And uh, I love these images of like the refined, wispish Eggleston and, and this, uh, you know, lithe Marsha Hare uh, that they're, you know, that, that Eggleston was kind of Cam, uh, I mean, that Campbell yeah. was kind of Eggleston's body, bodyguard and Marsha was Eggleston's muse and they would right, be right. going around town <laughs> taking lewds, you know, it was like it sounds wild like times. It. Now I'm super fascinated also by the Alex Chilton's family. It seems like his family right. home was almost like a Gertrude Stein salon, you know, it's like everybody interesting in Memphis was hanging out there and sharing ideas. Yes, she, his mom ran an art gallery his father was a jazz trumpet player who also ran a stage lighting company for money. And Alex was the youngest of several children. And by the time Alex was growing up, his dad was able to be getting back into jazz. So, um, so you had these artists and musicians hanging over, hanging out at the Chilton's house. They had this nice home with a little gallery in it, you know, and I was so pleased to uh, get that photo taken in the salon there of the musicians around the piano at the Chilton family home. Uh, my friend David Leonard is working on an Alex Chilton documentary and he had found that photo and, uh, and Alex's sister was kind enough mm. to let me use it. Yeah. You get the sense that, um, that Alex had, you know, that, that his worldview was wide and deep from the yeah, start. Amazing. I think, you know, one of the things you do with this book that is one of the things we love so much about our favorite music books is that you put music in a cultural and political context and, and you show how the music yeah. was influenced and yes, um, was influenced by everything from wrestling and strippers and the motorcycle gangs and, you know, and significantly it was a big part of the civil rights movement. So, you know, I love that you do that. And um, yes, 
It's the way I found it. It was after this book came out that I sort of came to the realization that it goes back to my visits to Furry Lewis's house. Um, because I was an East Memphis middle-class kid, you know. We were in one of the outer suburb rings, of, you know, around the city. And, um, and we had air conditioning and dishwasher and, you know, all that stuff. Central heat and air. And... And, and I guess it was like 10th, 11th grade when I'm hanging out at Furry Lewis's duplex. Uh, he doesn't have those things. The, the really eye-opening thing to me was we'd be sipping this. <laughs> Man, you know, I was afraid for my kids to read the book. I was like, God, you know. <laughs> um, we'd be sipping this whiskey and, uh, and Furry kept a jelly jar lid on his shot glass. And I said, you know, I said, Furry, why do you keep a jelly jar lid on your shot glass? Mm -hmm. Furry spoke of himself in the third person. And he said, he said, well, Furry can't see very well. And um, I, I don't want to get bitten by a spider. And I was like, wow. You know, later I realized yeah. I was just, I, it hung with me forever. And I realized, yeah, you right, know, that's right. not a problem we have in my house. That, that, <laughs> that the spiders are going to leap out of our you know, drinking glasses and bite us. So, um, so I, as I'm learning the, about this music and learning about these musicians, I'm also learning about, you know, economic yeah. and social differences. And I never thought of music as a vacuum. When you think of music in a vacuum, it's really boring. You know, it's not really boring, but it's just not as dimensional. It's not as fulfilling as knowing, you know, where it sits in the context of right. the greater things. And, and so I've always uh, tried to make sure that, you know, in all my books and all my film, all my work, that you get a rounded context of, of what the focus is. I knew I would be filed all my books. I, I gave up the battle, you know, they're all going to be filed in the music section of the store. Celavi, you know, but the people who get into it will, 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 you know, will know that they're getting much more than yeah, uh, a music As story. a consumer, you know, when I buy a record, for me, I'm not only buying that record, the artist, but I'm also buying their culture in the sense and where they come from. I mean, I, you know, I, I take the whole package. And a lot of my favorite artists are people who really convey yeah. their culture quite well, or they're part of the, the of that particular culture. And reading the Memphis book, you know, it's, you know, when, I st when I start first reading about Elvis Presley, for instance, um, and how he seemed to be almost like an alien uh, from outer space. And Serge Duffy born the same date as David Bowie. <laughs> I mean, the same birthday, but <laughs> another alien. But from reading your book, you know, yeah. like, you know, like, you know <laughs> Elvis, like as a teenager, maybe wearing mascara, you know, dyeing his hair a little bit. He was very flamboyant. And then, you know, I think, wow, he must have been a real weirdo in his neighborhood. But now reading your book... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe maybe Elvis is like one of the normal <laughs> Well, I think you know you I think you've hit onto something really, you know, and that is the Memphis aesthetic. I mean, you know, Elvis but for Sam Phillips, Elvis might not yeah. have ever been been anything but a truck driver, right? You know, Elvis went mm -hmm. into the recording studio trying to sing like Perry Como and and it was Sam who said, you know, hey, we got a Perry Como and encouraged him to do something different. You know, Sam's what Sam said over and over is the thing that I think defines Memphis the best, which is if you're not doing something different, you're not doing anything. 
this case for our listeners, Sam Phillips um, started up sure. or co-started Sun Records, which was Elvis Presley's, you know, first label as well right. as. Uh, but I'm going to interrupt you there. You know, Elvis El, uh, Sam started Sun Records to record the African American artists who didn't have a, a place to go. You know, long before he recorded Elvis, he was recording BB King. He was recording uh, a one man band. You know, he recorded um, the Newborns, the jazz. You know, the Newborn jazz group. He was recording Billy Emerson. Um, he was recording. Uh, obscure and unknown black artists and putting them out you know he and and not only that but when they would come in he would tell them he would he told Helen Wolf you know I don't want to hear what you think I want to mm -hmm. hear I want to hear what you play right. at home yeah. and that's a huge yeah. difference and that's a and that and that requires more than just Sam saying that you know that mm -hmm. requires the artist's faith in Sam and Sam has to earn that faith so it was a it was a major thing, and then it was then it was right. Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, Roy Orbison, uh, mm -hmm. Jerry Lee Lewis. You know, then it was all these white stars who came in after because they liked what Sam was doing and they wanted to do that. You know, so so it's more than more than Absolutely. just Elvis. But Sam also had like such a specific type of sound from his studio or his engineering skills. I mean, I think I could recognize yeah, very the production direct. of his, just, you know, like a jukebox jury type of thing, just something he's playing. I think I would recognize it's a Sam Phillips production <laughs> or from Sun Studios. Let's, let me make a, let me, I think this story might even be in the book. So John Prime comes to Memphis in the, uh, what was it, the 70s? He records the Pink Cadillac record here. And he's working at the Sam Phillips Recording Service, a studio that's still going, you know, in, in full speed. Um, and the record's produced by Knox and Jerry, Sam's two sons. And one night, Knox calls dad, you know, and says, Sam, you've got to come down here and hear this guy. His voice is so bad, you'll love him. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and Sam comes down and records and, and basically comes out of retirement to record two songs with John Prine, one of which is called Saigon. And, you know, they tell the story about there were sparks coming out of the, uh, the amp. They could hear the tubes melting after Sam had gotten it the way he liked it. And so when John Prine went to turn in the record, you know, the label said, well, this is all fine, but this song Saigon, you know, you got to go recut it. You've got a lot of distortion on there. And John Prine goes, you know, that is my favorite song on the record. And I'm not going to recut it. And I think they left the label and got a new deal just over that song and over what, you know, and so that's Sam, yeah, yeah. you know, doing something different. Another person who really looms large in the book and is practically on every page is Jim Dickinson. He seems like he was always at the right place okay, at the yeah. right time with the most interesting people. What was it about Jim that <laughs> just uh, made him so pervasive in this book? Yeah, like you said, he was you know the right guy at the right place at the right time, just about all the time. Uh, and and in, and in large part, sure. that's because he drew that those kind of people. Uh, again, for me, you know, being raised here, uh, I would read the daily paper and in the music column was always quoting Dickinson because he's so quotable as my book makes plainly evident, you know, Stanley Booth told Stanley Booth told Jim Dickinson, man, you know what you are? You're a quote whore. <laughs> was hilarious, you know, and they were friends, you know, he said it in a very favorable light. Um, 
but but so I would re- I was reading about Dickinson, and and in fact, my kind of entry into music journalism was I bought Peter Guralnik's Sweet Soul Music book. That would have been 1982 or three, and I was living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the time, and. I thought, you know, if this book tells me anything I don't know about my hometown, I'll be surprised. And goddamn, you know, page one, I was surprised. Oh wow! So, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> and and so Dickinson was in there, and when I saw him quoted in Peter's book, I was like, well, you know, I'm going to call that guy next time I'm going home, and I'm going to do an interview. And I pitched the interview to a little magazine, and I went home and did it. And Jim, and and it was, you know, I was talking to basically the guy who was at the core of everything I had been observing from the audience. And we had a great discussion. I write about all that in sort of the bookend book to it came from Memphis, which is called Memphis rent party came out uh, about two years ago. And, um, and I had this great experience interviewing him. And I think he was surprised that I knew all the things I knew. I was still pretty young and, you know, I was sort of the kid he was hoping had been out there to hear these things and be influenced by it all. So we developed a rapport and um, and I just always whenever I was writing about anything, if I could find a way to work Jim into it, I always did because I knew I knew not only would he you know sound good on the page, but he would give me insight, you know, and help me see things differently because Jim really had an inverted view of the world even more than Sam, you know, Jim was embracing the mistakes and turning them into art and, and, and defiant about it all. And it was very inspiring to me and a lot of other people. And so when I was writing the book, I, you know, it's kind of a, uh, what do they call those films? It's an ensemble cast. And, 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 but whenever I would get lost in the, in the drafting of the book, I would go, okay, where's Dickinson? What, you know, what year am I at? And where's Dickinson? <laughs> And, and for those who don't know who he is, because you've, you've heard him without knowing him, uh, for one, you know, probably his, one of his most famous things is to play piano on the Stones' Wild Horses, even though he's really down in the mix. But you see him in the, uh, in the Gimme Shelter film. You see him at the sessions and sitting on the sofa with Keith. And he also wrote a song called Across the Borderline that he recorded and Ry Cooter recorded. Jim produced a couple of Ry Cooter albums. Dylan recorded it. In fact, Dylan later got Jim to play on Time Out of Mind. And, you know, so that's the kind of guy he is. He produced Big Star Third um, and Like Flies on Sherbert, the great Alex Hilton album. Um, so he was, yeah, he was the guy. He liked controlled chaos. That's what, you know, he he, he was the chaos wrangler. Love it, love it. Um... I love how you also connected Memphis to the cultural happenings in New York and San Francisco and Paris. And it's interesting what you just said about um, how uh, you were surprised by reading that book that you learned new things. It just kind of shows the depth of the cultural scene in Memphis. And um, why do you, I mean, Memphis has so much going on. Why do you think it's still sort of somewhat under the radar as a cultural capital? Thank God. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, um, and, and it's, and, and really, you know, in a way there's, there's a battle going on for the soul of Memphis now because, um, of all this development, you know, uh, it's sort of the, 
the once once all the once Austin got too crowded and 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 the bathwater spilled over to Nashville as like another music town, hip place to be. And and now that's gotten so full that and and the bathwater's gotten dirtier and it's spilling over down to here. And there's, you know, people are moving here and there's development and and like, you know, things are being torn down that that are ugly, but they're beautiful. You know, they're they're just not um they don't meet the you know, better home and garden eye, but but they they meet all the standards of like you were talking about in the beginning, the 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 freaks and the underground, you know, so uh, and I've gotten real involved in that sense of historical preservation here in town, both because the city is so beautiful. You can stand in so many neighborhoods here and you're looking at um, you're looking in a, at a time capsule. You know, there's in Nashville now so many, you know, on every block things have been torn down and new things have gone up, but still here, whole swaths of neighborhood are preserved. So, you know, I'm just one little cog in a, in a, in a, in a movement that's trying to keep that. So, you know, why has Memphis stayed that way in part? I, well, here's, here's one possible reason uh, to riff for a second. You know, Memphis was never the company town like Nashville was, even when Memphis was having hits um, it was happening at independent recording studios and all the big labels out of here were independent labels. Sun was an indie, Stax was an indie, High Records was an indie, you know. Uh, we never had, CBS Records never had an office here. Warner Brothers executives, you know, generally stayed away. Um, you know, so uh, we're the place where people come to do what they're not allowed to do in other places. And, and I think that's created, that's helped preserve the culture here. It's smaller, it's um, less traveled, more parochial and backwards. And so the weird thing is when Elvis died, what was that, 1977, the city was astounded, flabbergasted that people from all over the world flocked here that you couldn't get a hotel room in town you couldn't buy a flower the phone lines went down and that's when the bastards who were running the city said oh wait a minute you mean in that trash music there's actually money to be made you know and so that's when beale street began to be revived you know it, it when when people here realized they could make a buck at it uh music began to, you know, people took a new look at music and, um, and that's kind of when, and, and that tension probably helped, you know, uh, I, I think that, you know, you look at all the great art that's grown out of oppression. I'm not at all in any way endorsing oppression, but I'm noting that historically, um, you know, the, the field hand, the African-American field hand, uh, who was dealt the you know the worst hand the the in you know possible is the creator of the blues and it's a real triumph to me you know i think it's it's a real triumph that the blues and rock and roll as the blues becomes the voice of america because it's the inversion you know it's not we're no longer trying to be in the european sophisticated right. town that we're not and will never be we are you know, there, people began to embrace the music of the people. 
and so it's a contradictory and difficult position, you know, but I think all of that, all of those contradictory and difficult roiling circumstances help keep the thing going. Yeah, definitely. Did Elvis and Alex Shilton and others, did they need Memphis to become either Alex Shilton or Elvis Presley? I mean, could Elvis Presley be in Nashville and be the Elvis that we know? Definitely not Nashville, uh-huh. you know, Minneapolis, maybe uh-huh. Austin, possibly, you know, definitely not a corporate town because uh-huh. in a corporate town, they would have said, oh, we got another Perry Como. Great. Right. You know? um, Alex, you know, the you know, <laughs> when you talk about Alex, I'm just you have to spin through the <laughs> there's a guy who had so many different stages of his yeah. career, you know, the box tops, big star. Uh, like flies on Sherbert, and then the, and then the nineties the and the and the two thousands, uh, yeah. sort of the uh, neo pop singer. Um, mm-hmm. So did he need Memphis? He I don't think there's anywhere else he could have recorded like flies on Sherbert. I'll say that for damn sure. That's exactly what I meant. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So so yeah, this is a place where that kind of where you can where you can come in with an off the wall idea and get some respect this is the kind of place where you can come come in with a you know uh bona fide hit kind of commercial idea and people can say nah nah you know <laughs> take, that take, take that crap elsewhere yeah yeah you know? exactly exactly is Memphis a, a very class conscious city I mean is there, is there if I, brutally so and somebody like William Eagleston um yeah who I always he always strikes me as an aristocrat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How does William Eagleston fits in the scene that he was in in Memphis? How how what I mean, what was his position there? Eggleston was raised in the Mississippi Delta. Mm-hmm. So let's pause there and do a little uh geography for a second. Mm-hmm. Memphis is in the corner, the very uh what would that be? Uh Southwest corner of Tennessee. We really don't belong in Tennessee. Our culture is more the capital of the Mississippi Delta because uh-huh. cotton was brought here to be traded. Um, all that Delta culture, you know, we're the big city in the distance. We're the bright lights in the distance. Uh-huh. And so this is where people, this is where people in the Delta came to buy fine clothes. Uh-huh. Um you know, so and 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 the city thought of itself as above all those Delta people, you know, and they really did try to do high tea at the Peabody Hotel downtown and dress in, you know, in the right clothes. And they tried to have these uh, crews like Mardi Gras, like New Orleans does. Uh, but um, and so Eggleston was surrounded by poverty, but from a wealthier family. Mm-hmm. Um in Sumner, Mississippi. So he had an education and he also was a realist, I would say. You know, he saw the world around him for what it was. So I think that opened him up in a way when he came and he and I've always been impressed that he stayed in Memphis. You know, he could he could go live in any city in the world and get and be, you know, get all the respect he wants. But he doesn't want that because he wants to, you know, for many, many years, he just wanted to get fucked up and and (laughs) go out at night and do stuff, you know? And this was a great, this is a great place for that. So, um, 
and and then and so he was drawn to the bohemian scene and with his camera and his video camera as well in the 70s uh-huh. and, and and documented all that and sort of drew from it drew inspiration from it i guess there's a diane arbus kind of parallel but it's a different kind of freakiness and 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 eggleston was approachable so that uh you know tav falco could borrow eggleston's equipment and go shoot stuff Mm -hmm. it was he was amenable that way can you talk about the film the stranded in canton and your involvement in it stranded in canton (laughs) (laughs) um so when i was writing the book so the to me as you know, coming up, the stranded in Canton footage was mythical and legendary and extremely hard to see. I only got to see some of it as I was writing the book and got friends with the Egglestons and, you know, got to borrow some VHS tapes from them and see what Bill had shot. Bill took a, when portable video was introduced in 19, in the early 1970s, he got one of the early cameras and he's got a great engineering mind. I mean, as artistic as he is, he's got a real strong sense of engineering, uh, radio, uh, radio and, you know, sonic stuff that I don't understand. He's into all that. Um, Mm -hmm. and so he took the tubes out of the camera and replaced them with infrared tubes so that he was recording heat and not light. Mm-hmm. which meant he could go into dark nightclubs and all dark kind of places and get an image, Yeah, you know, and everybody thought, Oh, that's Eggleston drunk carrying around his camera <laughs> when, you know, he was actually making these recordings. So when the book was done and the family was real pleased with the way I presented him and I was a filmmaker, uh, they, I said, Hey, let's, you know, let me, let me work on those tapes. And they agreed and we started on it, but it wasn't the right moment, really, because uh, it wasn't digital. It was too much material. And when it became when I went back to it in the early 2000s, we could digitize the master tapes Mm -hmm. and it made the editing doable. And Uh so I just went back and I got I immersed myself and I don't remember how many hours there were. 30 or so hours, I think, and just began to pare it down, put things together, mm-hmm. like with like, to do need this, don't need that, and whittled and winnowed and um, and realized that what I ended up with there, which is a, I don't know, 80 minute feature film that you can see for free on YouTube, mm-hmm. uh, that what I had was an Eggleston autobiography mm-hmm. and that it was the picture of Eggleston's world. And if Bill was never in it or infrequently in it, he was always there because he was the center of it. Right. You know, the, the shape of Canton is Bill. Mm-hmm. And what it is, is, uh, you know, it's his kids at home coming outside in the morning. It's, um, it's people in recording studios. It's people in bars. It's people drinking. It's his friend, the, Dennis talking about his teeth, uh, you know, all this sounds incredibly mundane and it is, but it's beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. Bill is shooting it with his eye. I, I also was real interested as I was shooting it in providing 
uh, a field trip on William Eggleston's eyeball. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the way I thought of it. And, and, uh, you know, Bill went to extreme places. You see, bizarrely, a geek contest on the streets of New Orleans, you know, Mm -hmm. two guys competing who can, who's better at biting the heads off chickens. Uh, so that's what, that's what Canton is. Now, you, you've made quite a few films, which I didn't realize until I looked at your website. I've actually seen Best of Enemies, which I loved. That's mm-hmm. such a oh, fantastic thank you. film. Yeah, yeah. Um, My one touch with commercial success. Yes. <laughs> Congratulations. I swear to God, when I, when I got that idea, I said, oh, my God, this, this is going to get me an Academy Award nomination. It actually, just the idea. I just knew the idea was that good. And it did get me short-listed, but I did not make the final five. Um oh. Yeah, I, I uh, came up playing around with Super 8 a lot. And I actually, before before my journalism career, no, I had been writing for Spin Magazine when I moved to my one year of film school in Austin, Texas. So I, uh, you know, I began making music videos. And I made a I made a short documentary in 1989 or so called uh, All Day and All Night, which had B.B. King and Rufus Thomas in it and it got picked up by national PBS and showed at the museum of modern art. And I thought, Hey, maybe I'm good at this. So <laughs> I kind of kept at it off and on, you know, what I have found out now it's uh, I've spent the past, basically the past five years since best of enemies developing documentaries and having them not get made. It's been, it's been a real drag. I made one, but, uh, and I'm about to get another, I'm about to make two more, I think. So, you know, but I, I had films seemed so much easier than, than books. I liked right. books really? because, well, films I would, just didn't take as difficult. long. There's so many people collaborating, whereas a book, it's just, it's predominantly you. Well, so there's you that. No, it, there's, there's two different things going on. One is I would finish a book, which would be basically, you know, two or three years in a dark hole by myself. And I'd come <laughs> right. out and go, God damn, I need to see some people. And I'd yeah. make a film. And I, and I'd go, God damn it, this film, you know, if that guy hadn't held that light like that, and if this person hadn't done that, this film would have been really good. Fuck it, I'm going back in the hole. And then, and, you know, I never, I never once capitalized. I never like, I never followed a book with a book or a film with a film. I just bounced back and forth. And um, but but they're also once once a film is funded, it's uh, it goes faster. You know, um, you can make it in a year easy. Uh, so that was. And, and they pay better. So there was a peer. You <laughs> <Yes>. know. <laughs> but I do feel like generally books, you know, more of my soul. There, there's books come from books are a more individual thing than a film. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems like all of your work definitely relates, though. You know, I mean, a lot of your film work is gotten you know music and and the same kind of cultural issues that you're dealing with in your books the the outlier is best of enemies which i thought of as i was like oh this is this is musical the way these two guys are arguing back and forth is extremely musical and um it's also characters you know so that's the other thing i've always been into and what and that's sort of what it came from memphis uh you know, is it's a series of characters. So, right. so I thought of best of enemies as, you know, portraits of these, of, uh, for those who haven't seen it, uh, portraits of, uh, William Buckley and Gore Vidal, um, going at each other at the 1968 political conventions. Yeah. And, 
you know, extremely relevant in these days because because those heated debates between the two kind of introduced uh, the uncivil discourse as a moneymaker. Yes. Right. Right. But wouldn't it be nice, though, if at least the people nowadays were that intelligent? (laughs) Yeah. If they were yelling at each other and could offhand quote Pericles or use like five the words the first time i watched those raw tapes of the of the debates between buckley and and vidal about 4 minutes in i hit pause and i got up and i got my dictionary and i sat back down and i just constantly <laughs> hit and looked up words yeah. and I, and, yeah. and that's what i look for in a project you know if you're going to devote a year or 5 years of your life to something you got to le- you want to be able to learn something you want to sure. enjoy it and so i thought yeah, yeah it's be i'm into that what's interesting i was raised you know the 1960s and 1970s watching tv of course and it seems to me that there's so much more interesting people at that time on tv talking about serious subjects you know like you get like gore vidal talking about issues of the day not this is latest book or our truman Capote, yeah. and then you, yeah. know, then you have people like dick cavett who put groucho marx with gore vidal or you know yeah. truman Capote. yeah and, you know, nowadays, the, all the chat shows are just totally, just, you know, selling product. And Yeah, exactly. It's a promo event. Yeah. It's a, it, I mean, they were always promo. When Gore Vidal was on, he was, he was shilling for his book. But, um, but he was, you know, he was interesting. And the interviews were wide ranging. The, the, the conversation wasn't just about the product. No. You got to know these characters mm-hmm. and what they thought about. And yeah, you don't see that so much. I mean, I don't, uh, where is it now? You know, you know where it is now? It's in podcasts is where it yeah, is now. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. We're in favor of that, yes. <laughs> I remember seeing William Buckley's, you know, front line. And Buckley's, you know, I don't like him. He's just a right-wing, you know, yep. well-spoken right-wing person, but a right-wing <laughs> person. And that, that he interviewed people like Allen Ginsberg on his show, you know, it's been a guy, you know, uh, really lots of interesting people were on his show not just people yeah. who shared his political belief or his philosophy. exactly exactly you could tune in there and i mean i watched him as a kid before i could understand anything he was saying Me just because i like to see him slouch and watch the cigarette smoke yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. um and also look like a yeah. <laughs> in Memphis, he came on at the same time the uh, preachers came on on like Sunday morning. So he, you know, he was the only option. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the fact that he was looking for honest debate, or but that's also the thing about Buckley is that he wasn't always looking for honest debate. No, you know, he was looking. He was looking for the kill. Mm-hmm. He wanted to, you know, go. He wanted. He wanted to make when he had uh, who was it? Uh, Jack Kerouac, mm-hmm. the Fugs guy, Ed Sanders, and uh, Yablonski or someone else on there. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just trying to make Ed Sanders look bad and look bad. And I thought, man, Ed Sanders stood up great to it all. You know, and really, yeah. and, and I guess that I guess that that's what it, that's why it was great because if the people could fight back against Buckley, Buckley loved that. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a real, it, it was a real discourse. Yeah. Some interesting people that you had in the book that are, had quirky TV shows that I was very fascinated were uh, Harry uh, Fritzius and yes. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly and Dewey Phillips. Yes. Um, 
Oh man, I would love to have seen those TV shows. Like it's, again, you don't have stuff like that now. Maybe tell our audience a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So Dewey Phillips, no relation to Sam Phillips, but happening in Memphis at the exact same time. In fact, Sam, when Sam records the acetate of, of Elvis Presley, he doesn't know what he's got and he takes it to Dewey and Dewey puts it on the radio, you know, and plays it over and over until he, he pulls Elvis out from the, he sends someone to get Elvis out of the movie theater and, and, and brings Elvis on the radio for his first interview. Um, Cause Dewey was into the madness, you know, at a time we're talking, Dewey goes on, De Dewey was a white guy who loved R and B and not only R and B, he loved that free spirit. So Dewey had no problem connecting Bill Monroe, sister Rosetta Tharp and Jerry Lee Lewis, all of that. That was a set of music, you know, back to back. And it made, and he could make it make sense. Whereas in that time period and, and for the whole next, like, 15 or 20 years, you're dealing with, you know, programming that is predictable. You can tune in at four o'clock and know from four to 4.15, you're going to hear light classics, 4.15 to 4.30, you're going to hear, you know, uh, old country and then whatever. It's all programmed and predictable. And Dewey broke all that up. And Dewey got so popular in Memphis. He also, you know, he was extremely uncoordinated and the microphone was always feeding back. You know, these were the, this was the beginning of embracing the mistakes in a way. And he got so popular that they put him on TV in the afternoon. And so think about this. It was, I can't remember the year, late fifties. He's doing a simulcast radio and TV on a show called pop shop. The breaks are at different times, right? Because they haven't gotten that coordinated yet. So it was just, you know, and, and the first thing he did is break the fourth wall, turns the camera beyond the set to show the other camera people and the engineers in the audience, you know, the engineers out there, everything was part of the show. So he's a total rule breaker and uh, he inspired everybody here. I think everybody, certainly every white musician who you've heard of from Memphis, uh, beginning with Elvis and going through Jim Dickinson and into all the Stax people and everything, they all, you can ask any of them about Dewey Phillips. So his sidekick was Harry Fritzius. And um, Harry was apparently this really straight young man who'd graduated from art school, who was quite bright and kind of hated Dewey uh, because he thought Dewey was kind of stupid, but he liked the madness, you know? <laughs> Dewey unlocked something in Harry and the two of them unlocked it in the city. And it was just beautiful to see them together. Harry wore one of these eight masks so he could put on the mask and be someone totally different. Here's a great story. Dewey, uh, Dewey remained friends with Elvis because Elvis was always appreciative to uh, Dewey for putting him on the air, you know, in the beginning. So when Elvis is in Hollywood making, I don't know, one of those horrible films, he flies Dewey out. Dewey meets and, and, and he's hanging around with Elvis. Everything's fine until Elvis <laughs> introduces him to Yule Brenner. And Dewey says, yeah, you're a short mother, ain't you? And, uh, <laughs> and then Dewey gets sent home, but he gets sent home with a test pressing of Teddy Bear. And he's told, wow. check this out. You'll really enjoy it. But, you know, you can't play it on the radio. So Dewey comes home and begins playing it on the radio. Yeah, of course. You know, and everybody's loving it. And there and people talk about seeing this on TV one day. 
Harry Fritzius in the ape mask walks over to the the acetate that Dewey's been playing and picks it up and does this examination of it. And then to Dewey's, you know, shock and horror begins to eat the acetate, <laughs> breaking it, you know, and <laughs> just beautiful stuff. Beautiful stuff. Yeah. Uh, I love the chaos. The chaos. Exactly. But Harry Fritzius is also sort of mysterious. I, you write in the book that you tried to find out what happened to him and then you've got some conflicting stories. Yeah. When the book, that's one of the fun things about getting to do the revised edition. So uh, when the book came out, the first letter I received was from someone in Blytheville, Arkansas, about 45 minutes from here. And she said, you know, Harry Fritzia settled down and had, oh, and, and in the book, uh, somebody tells a story about Harry being gay at a time when, you know, it was not acceptable. And Harry sat down with the crew and said, explained, yeah, you know, I'm a homosexual and, you know, everything, you know, made everybody comfortable about it. Mm -hmm. And so, and was really great about that. And, and then this woman writes to say, no, you know, Harry settled down in Arkansas and had a very happy career. Uh, I mean, not a career, had a very happy family and, you know, lived out his days here. And then someone else wrote me from San Francisco or someone else wrote me from Arkansas. I guess he must've been there and said, uncle Harry moved to San Francisco and became quite a well-known artist out there. And so in the and so in the revised edition, I did find he, he he had died, but he had become quite well known in San Francisco. Alcoholic at the end of his life, um, seemed like he did have a family at some point, um, and uh, but I you know I never I never could get it straight. I had these two conflicting stories, and and one of the things I learned from Peter Goralnik when I was reading that Sweet Soul Music years ago is that it's okay to not know and to present both sides of, you know, possibilities. Yeah, so sure. I, I really embrace that in my storytelling. The mystery makes it even more interesting. What, <laughs> what year was Harry in San Francisco? Do you know? Um, I believe that Harry was out there. I think Harry died in the 90s in San Francisco. Oh. And my impression is he'd been out there for a couple decades. Oh, huh, okay. Yeah, look him up. It's Tosh is an artist and they lived up there. When did your family live there, Tosh? Uh, they lived there in the late 50s to like 1960. And my dad was, you know, was part of the, you know, so-called, you know, the beat generation, yeah. the beat world. And, you know, it's a small, it was a small city. And, you know, if you're in the beat world, you would know each other. So <laughs> I was wondering, when I read about him, I was wondering if my dad may have knew him. Um, I was curious about, you know. Sounds like he got, I'm guessing Harry got there after, if, if your dad left in the 60s, he got there after uh, after that. Okay. Um, you know, I forget if, I, uh, I guess Renee Komen, who um, we all, we're, we all know, Told, told me uh, about your dad, that who your dad was. And, Ooh. you know, one of my film projects in the coming year, fingers crossed, and, you know, if the creeks don't rise, uh, is going to be a uh, film about the beats. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, we're working with uh, some Allen Ginsberg audio recordings. Oh, great. Sort of his take on the beats is going to be the spine of the of the telling and my intention is mm -hmm. to elevate the 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 beat filmmakers to the you know respect of the beat author oh great mm. great great yeah you know there's people like larry jordan who's an animator yeah independent artist you know I, my parents knew him very well and i knew him as a child and teenager 
Yeah, so that's a that's it sounds like a great. Robert, part. you're going to be interviewing Tosh in the not too distant future. Hey, yeah, that's right. We'll switch sides with the microphone. Look <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, kind of thing when you bring up the the beat. You know, really the Memphis Bohemian world of the late '50s and the '60s. Yeah. It's not that far different from the beats. I mean, the look and everything, and maybe aesthetic, but you know, it's basically a bunch of outsiders who find each other and. Exactly. They do things, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Because they're on, like, one of the things Dickinson, Dickinson said is, uh, and I think he got it from a wrestler, you know, mm-hmm. is uh, if you're not on the edge, you're taking up too much space. <laughs> <laughs> and so people on the edge, you know, that's how, you were asking about Eggleston earlier. Eggleston was yep. on the edge, you know. Yeah. So he met these arch hippies and, and they could speak the same language even though they shared no background whatsoever yes absolutely absolutely they had that same kind of worldview yeah i think people on that edge always seem to gravitate towards one another no matter how far apart they may be geographically they somehow find one another you know it's just the law of the universe (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah my dad actually met elvis and i met elvis tell the story we lived in Beverly Glen, which is a canyon area between um, like Beverly Hills and like Studio City, I believe. Yeah, Coldwater Canyon, um, very close to UCLA. And um, Elvis, when he did his Hollywood movies, stayed very close to Beverly Glen. And every Saturday at the Beverly Glen Park, Elvis and his Memphis buddies will play, Mafia, against, yeah. will play against anybody who shows up at this park, usually my dad and his friends. Oh, no kidding. Touch football. Touch football with Elvis. Yeah. um, I went there once as a child. I must have been like eight or nine years old. And um, one of Elvis's Memphis guys came up to me and said, Tosh, you want to meet Elvis? And I said, sure. And I only know Elvis as a celebrity movie guy. You know, I didn't didn't think he was a music person. You know, it was just during the time of the Beatles and just a movie guy to me. Yeah. So I approached Elvis with his Memphis friend. Um, Elvis was sitting on the bench and he had like wrapped around sunglasses, a sailor cap and like sort of a white double breasted jacket, sort of like a sailor outfit in a way. And he was just watching the game. He wasn't participating in the game. And anyway, Elvis's friend approached Elvis from the back, tapped on the shoulder and said, Elvis, meet Tosh. And I took my hand out. And Elvis didn't look at me. He just kept looking at the game, but he just took his hand out. And he huh. and I just grabbed his hand and shook it. And that was my meeting with Elvis. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's a, that's kind of surprising because all the stories are, you know, about him being so courteous. And uh, he was very polite. He was a heck of a game. He didn't hit me. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> But he didn't look at you. He didn't look at me, but he was, you know, it's, he, he was a sort of chilled, I guess. I think he was very chilled <laughs> at that time. And uh, I've heard stories of um, when I lived in Topanga, which is in the canyon area, um, there was shooting there, like an Elvis movie. And my fellow friends, my fellow, you know, like this is sort of junior high school or, or late elementary school, they actually were invited by Elvis to hang out with him in his, like his, his, um, his trailer. So, you know, the stories you hear about Elvis being really friendly and, you know, and kind is, you know, I think is very true. It's just mm-hmm. my one incident of meeting him was this, you know, 
two ships passing the night, I guess, or during the day. I remember in the 90s when I was like the uh, sort of lead local music guy and, uh, you know, uh, music journalist in Memphis. And I realized, oh, wow, you know, if Elvis were alive, I'd probably be going out to Graceland to do an interview with him. What would he be doing now? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Mm. Ah, he'd be on the PTL club, you know, <laughs> he'd be doing the 900 club. He'd be doing those uh, born again Christian shows like Glenn Campbell was doing back in the 90s. Yes. He was a really conflicted person, I think, you know, because he had that fundamentalist religious yeah. belief and this experience in the practical world that that didn't align with that so well. So, yeah. And like we were saying earlier, you know, conflict and art, they go hand in hand. Was Elvis isolated in Memphis itself? I mean, for instance, did, did Jim Dickinson ever meet him or hang out with him or any, or William Eagleston, for instance? I mean, or is that a totally separate world from the Elvis world? You know, the Elvis world, well, I don't think that Eggleston or Dickinson ever met Elvis. I don't recall either of them telling me those stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, and when I, you know, my Elvis story is uh, he would play racquetball at the Jewish Community Center. And my friend's father was the uh, executive there. So he's, my friend said to me, hey, you want to come watch Elvis play racquetball? <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I didn't care, you know. Elvis yeah. was so, uh, Elvis was not Furry Lewis. <laughs> right, right. I would imagine this revising this book was a bit of an emotional roller coaster, given how many people have left us in the last twenty five years. Definitely, um, everybody's so alive in the book, and your writing style really brings everybody to life. You know, and uh, I'm you. sure as you were revising it, that was that was a bit tough. That was tough, but the other thing was I hadn't read the book in about fifteen years, mm. and so I finally had enough distance. For to one laugh at so much of the funny stuff because I didn't know it was coming, you know, it was a surprise <laughs> to me, and um, and that was a blast. And 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 people have come up to me for a quarter century and, and said to me, "Man, your book really changed my life." And I just never understood what they meant, you know. But this time, I think I got it. And yeah. and and what I came away understanding is that um, people, you know realize that they don't have to, that every song doesn't have to be a hit, that it's not about being a hit. And it's really not even about success, that what it's about is um, setting your artistic goals and pursuing them and right. staying true to that. Yeah. And that was real rewarding for me to realize, even if it's not what people meant, that's what I think they meant. And that's what I got out of it, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was real inspiring for me. Yeah. Well, I think these are the people who are sort of, they're moving things forward. You know, it's like, it's, it may not be on a grand scale, but it's like all these little steps of moving things forward, you know, and then it finally somehow gets to a bigger part, you know, like the integration issues and things like that. You know, it's yeah. like they start out in a small level, you know, with the wrestler that you talk about, that was a really interesting story about this white wrestler who had a huge black fan base and was very adamant about integrating his audiences. Yeah. His fan base grew so big that they outgrew the segregated space at the top of the auditorium. Right. And Sputnik Monroe told the manager, if you don't let my people sit in the next balcony down, then I'm, I'm going to quit. I'm going to, you know, move out of town. Mm -hmm. And, and once they came out of the balcony, there was no way to maintain the, division 
and there, it was like instant desegregation and it was a civic facility. So, you know, this guy, this, I love that it's these quote unquote low, low class things, right. you know, the blues mm-hmm. and professional wrestling. But this, this guy is responsible for integrating the, the, you know, Memphis civic spaces. Yeah, exactly. It's these small steps, you know, cause they all add up. And so, you know, it's all of these people, like you say, these so-called sort of low-class people, whatever you want to call them. Um, but, you know, they're the people in the underground who are, are the ones that are really moving everything forward. Yes. And it's been, it's just so beautiful to see, you know, that, that ultimately they're the victors that, that, you know, right. that, that, that the people putting on airs are wrong mm-hmm. and that the people who are honest about the real world, um, get their day. And I guess that inspires people too. you know, big star is a big part of the book. And I love it. It's, you know, they're the, they become the answer to if you make a great record in a forest and no one hears it, yeah. you know, does it make a sound? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. You know, a very resounding. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way they're sort of the Southern version of the velvet underground, not the same image, of course, but the fact that they put an album out that didn't sell yet all the listeners who bought that record or heard that record started up their own band or, you know, made their own records and, you know, went onward. And Big Stars is, is one of those rarity groups that sort of inspired, you know, a whole generation of, uh, of great musicians or interesting musicians. Exactly. Exactly. And the same thing happens. We've, we've mentioned a few times, uh, like flies on Sherbert, that, yeah. that, that Alex Chilton solo record. I remember when I first heard it, you could go to a record store and preview the album, you know, drop a needle on it and give it a listen. So I dropped the needle and I, I hear Alex bump into the microphone, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and I'm like, they didn't even fix that, man. I'm not going to, you know, and, and, and I think I heard, you know, like the Panther Burns or X or something soon after that. And I was beating that, the door down at that store. Give me that. (laughs) That's actually the first Alex I ever heard. In fact, Tosh played it for me back in the eighties. I hadn't heard big star. I mean, I'd heard the box tops obviously, but I didn't, you know, I didn't know who the name of the lead singer was Mm -hmm. or anything. And uh, Tosh played like flies on sherbet for me and i was like okay i like this guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i was introduced all, right. all the weird records first <laughs> yeah, Tosh yeah. Like, he, he doesn't give me the obvious easy stuff <laughs> that's great no that that that's great uh you know i got into alex through third the big star third album which was uh-huh. the very yeah, dark you know yeah so different so different. My introduction to Alex's work, I think, is when he went to New York and started recording with, um, you know, with Chris Damey and those type of people in New York at mm-hmm. the time. So that was my first yeah. presence of Alex Shilton. And then I went back, you know, then I went way mm-hmm. back. And of course, I, knew, I heard of the box tops. But compared to box tops to later Alex 80s music, it's sort of like box tops is like from another planet or something. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's so, you know, it's such a, I mean, he learned so well, you know, he's, sure. he's like 15 at his first recording session has a number one hit. I love that. You know, he did everything backwards. Mm-hmm. He has the hit the first time, you know, and then, and then works his way toward obscurity with <laughs> diligence and persistence. Yes. And, and uh, you know, he begins as a teen with a really gruff voice. And as he matures, his voice gets higher. Yes. Yeah. You know, just like sort of bucking all trends. 
Yeah, yeah. I love that you sort of celebrate his entire career, unlike a lot of people who really focus on the big star stuff, because everything he did is so interesting. Yeah. And I love that he didn't keep making the same album over and over. I don't understand no. people who are like, why doesn't he do another big star? It's like, well, because yeah. he wants to grow as an artist. You know, it's just, uh, I don't, you know, he did those. They're great. And now he's moving on. I don't, I'm, I'm always mystified by people who want to hear the same record over and over and over again. <laughs> if you ain't doing something different, you ain't doing anything. Yeah, yeah. Fact, like at 15 or 16, he had the, you know, he had the box tops fame tour. You know, he had it already by the time he was 19. So yeah, it's kind of interesting with like his relationship with uh, Chris Bell, the other songwriter and member of mm-hmm. Big Star. And I just, just rewatched a documentary again a couple of nights ago. And you know, uh-huh. Chris Bell specifically really wanted to be big star. You know, <laughs> yeah. and he he loved England. And Alex Shilton, I think, I'm presuming, I'm not sure about, this, but, I, but I'm presuming that Alex Shilton thought the name big star was ironic, where Chris Bell probably thought, "I want to be a big star." <laughs> I think well, was, you know, I don't know. There's, uh, I think it's on the internet somewhere or maybe Chris Stamey sent it to me. I think it's on the internet somewhere. Chris Stamey posted a recording he had made of them of them rehearsing in New York, Alex and Chris mm-hmm. and whoever the third guy was, I've forgotten. And um, Alex is saying they, they've got a gig coming up at Max's. It's sort of Alex's New York debut, or at CB's, mm-hmm. I think. It's his, it's his New York debut, you know, in this new form. And Alex, unironically, I'll add, is saying, oh, man, you know, we're going to be huge. We're going to be playing Shea Stadium. And <laughs> okay. It was really shocking to me to hear that. Uh-huh. Yeah, that even at that date, what would that have been, you know, 77-ish yeah, or so, uh-huh. he's, which is post-Big Star, he's yeah. still wanting, he's tasted that fame, and he still wants, yeah, he still wants that. He's, he's those big star records, even, you know, it sort of changes my interpretation of, mm-hmm. of his goals in a way, but it goes a long way toward explaining his, his ornery nature. Right. <laughs> it sounds conflicting. Not not it, but you didn't want to do what you needed to do to get it, you know, because <laughs> right. the first time right. he got it, it seemed so easy. Yeah. And, and undeserved in a way, yeah. right. Because he hadn't worked at it. Yeah. And, and, and then when he really did the, crafting of the songs and the records and the and the production you know it was it it didn't come interesting man yeah 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 so it was cool because in a way you know in in the book and sort of the last he he's another through character he comes in later than dickinson jim's there right at the beginning but um alex uh becomes another recurring character, as you said. Yeah, he's a big presence. Yeah, I mean, uh, Tab Falco is associated with him. You talk a lot about Tab, Panther Burns, and there's so much in this book to talk about. We could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. (laughs) We have not talked about Stax records. (laughs) Yeah, sure. You know, I did a whole book on Stax and and a documentary, actually. Yeah, I know. I know. All right, well, we're going to have to do those uh, soon and, and get you yeah. back on the show for yes we need to do a stack record show I'm, I'm interested in dan penn as well i i just yeah i recently bought maybe his demos yeah and yeah and they knocked me out i love them yeah you hear that voice it's like because in peter's book mm-hmm. sweet soul music they they talked about those demos so much and about dan's ability to sound like anything and you know sound like all these people and uh and those demos really make it plain there's Dan's, uh, is it his first solo album? 
Nobody's Fool. Mm-hmm. It's a great record. You can f- I found a, like a Japanese import CD at one point. You I'll can find, find it. it every now and then. I'll look yeah, for he's it. The, for those who are tuning in, he was the producer of the box tops. Yeah. Sort I of original producer of the box tops. And then the song he wrote was uh, Spooner Oldham. Is that the, his name? Yeah. 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 Um, Cry Like a Baby. And then yeah. uh, he wrote a song. He and Chips Moman wrote some great songs. Dark End of the Street. Yes. And uh, Do Do Right Woman. Yes. Wonderful. What a, what a writer and, what a, and a great singer. I mean, wow. And he's up there in Nashville right now, just saying no to everything that comes his way. Actually, he just put out an album. Uh-huh. Uh, I hadn't gotten the new one yet, but uh, but yeah, he he just does his thing the way he wants. Is Dan Penn a Memphis person, or is he from somewhere else and did some work in Memphis? He's from Alabama. Alabama, and he got his start in Muscle Shoals at the uh-huh. Muscle Shoals scene. He was one of the you know he wasn't it was it was uh, Rick Hall who's kind of the 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 fire starter there, but. Dan was real early on to the scene and then comes to Memphis and then goes to Nashville. Right. What a fascinating figure. Yeah. And yeah, we have to do another show. I think, I think on your Stax Records book, if you're. Let's do it. Hey, look, I have really, y'all have been great interview uh, people. I've really enjoyed that you were, you know, y'all had specific things you were interested in and, you know, not a dull moment and not the same old questions. Kinley's more like Gord Vidal and I'm more like William Buckley. <laughs> well, I'm not socking anyone in the goddamn gym, <laughs> but I will get plastered. <laughs> well, it's been such a pleasure, such a pleasure, Robert. We've really enjoyed having. Thank you. Thank y'all. Yes, it, it the book is it came from Memphis. Robert Gordon is our guest and author, published by Third Man Books, and what a wonderful book! I mean, it's a great book. It's a classic, it's a classic music book, of course, but it's a classic book about a city or a town. Again and update and revise it. And uh, you added a bunch more photos, correct? Yes. This uh, the third man edition is a whole new layout. So I've got eighty new photos, no repeats from earlier editions, and um, uh, a couple new chapters, an updated chapter, a new introduction, a vast buying guide at the back. Ah, the buying and, guide. Um, great. I, I I wanted to mention that. You, I'm glad you mentioned it. That is such a great part of the book. Thank you for writing that. Yeah, because I definitely learned over the years that people were interested in this stuff. And and and, and a lot of it's so obscure, they don't know how to find it, but it's there. So mm-hmm. all the leads are there with, you know, uh, web addresses and information and my opinions on what's good and bad. And yeah. uh, and I also, you know, feathered, I did a bunch of new interviews without restructuring the book. I feathered them in, especially um, due to a letter I'd gotten soon after publication. I did about 10 interviews with women who were on the scene um, who I hadn't interviewed. So I, they're all, I got the, I got the female voice raised a bit. Great. Nice. Wonderful. I appreciate that for sure. So <laughs> that is to say that if you have already read this book, you need to get the new edition and read it as well. Yeah, <laughs> please. I read it twice. <laughs> it's an easy book to reread. Definitely. There's yeah. so much content, so much interesting content. Thank y'all very much. Thank Look you. forward to doing it again. Yeah. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to Book Music. And join us next time when we'll be discussing Shebop, the Definitive History of Women in Popular Music by Lucy O'Brien. And you can uh, follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for all the latest news. And we've got playlists for every episode on Spotify and Apple Music. So we're going to have a lot of fun with this playlist for sure. 
And we have links to everything on our website at bookmusic.com, B-O-O-K-M-U-S-I-K.com. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.